Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with breaking news. President Biden tonight has accepted the request from Neera Tandon to withdraw her name for nomination for the director of office and management and budget tonight. We're going to get to that breaking story in just a moment. But we actually begin with the very real present and growing threat of right wing extremism in America. In ominous testimony delivered to the Senate Judiciary Committee today, FBI Director Christopher Wray sounded the alarm, saying the deadly siege on the U.S. Capitol in January will serve as an inspiration to more extremists here at home as well as abroad. Despite Republican attempts to downplay the January 6th insurrection, Wray was unambiguous in labeling the attack an act of domestic terrorism, warning that the threat is far from over. That attack, that siege was criminal behavior, plain and simple, and it's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. January 6th was not an isolated event. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. More broadly, Director Ray said the FBI is now pursuing roughly 2,000 domestic terrorism cases, which represents a huge spike since he took the job in 2017. And he reiterated that the FBI treats the threat of racially motivated extremism, like violent white supremacy, the same as foreign terrorism, like ISIS. We elevated racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism to our highest threat priority on the same level with ISIS and homegrown violent extremists. The number of arrests, for example, of racially motivated violent extremists who are what you would categorize as white supremacists last year was almost triple the number it was in my first year as director. More specifically, Ray said there was no doubt that some of the insurrectionists on January 6th harbored white supremacist views. And as we've increasingly seen, it represents a growing and pernicious threat. Take, for example, the case of Riley June Williams, the 22-year-old who stole Speaker Pelosi's laptop and tried to sell it to Russian intelligence. Newly uncovered video appears to demonstrate her neo-Nazi sympathies, showing her saluting Hitler in a disturbing clip posted to a white supremacist chat group. But in recent weeks, we've seen Republican attempts to whitewash the events of January 6th trying to deflect responsibility from the former president as well as from themselves. They've raised the specter of the so-called left-wing extremists trying to pin the blame on their favorite boogeyman, Antifa, a.k.a. anti-fascists. They've equivocated on the danger of right-wing violence while pretending that Black Lives Matter, the movement against police and other violence against black Americans, is the real threat. And most notably, Republicans like the party's chief conspiracist, Senator Ron Johnson, have falsely claimed that, quote, fake Trump supporters were the ones who are really responsible for the deadly siege. Today, FBI Director Ray slapped down those Republican-fueled conspiracy theories. Do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump 
protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, sir. Is there any evidence at all that it was organized or planned or carried out by groups like Antifa or Black Lives Matter? We have not seen any evidence to that effect thus far. Not only that, but prosecutors are now alleging that the neo-fascist militantly pro-Trump group, the Proud Boys, coordinated the breach of the Capitol at several different entry points. In other words, these were not left-wing extremists. Their ideology was firmly on the far right. Joining me now is Senator Alex Padilla of California, a member of the Judiciary Committee who participated in today's hearing. And, Senator, I want to play for you. Thank you for being here this evening. I want to play for you um, one of your exchanges with uh, FBI Director Ray. Um, take a listen. This was on law enforcement. Do you believe there's a concerted effort by right-wing extremists to infiltrate law enforcement agencies? We work very closely with uh, both our law enforcement partners and our military partners uh, in their efforts to uh, address any kind of um, violent extremism that may be in their midst. We view that as, in effect, a kind of uh, insider threat, if you will, Uh, and they do too. When there are bad apples in the midst, we work with our partners to, uh, to try to get ahead of it. The, the, the sort of bad apples answer. Were you satisfied with that answer? Well, it was uh, the, the beginning of a conversation. Obviously, uh, the need for additional questions, additional fact-finding, additional inquiry. Uh, the FBI themselves have said uh, this is a concern. And given their relationship and uh, coordination with law enforcement agencies across the country, uh, I think uh, hopefully there's an opportunity here to figure out what the best practices are for identifying and weeding out these, quote-unquote, bad apples uh, so that uh, law enforcement uh, returns to position of regaining trust in the community and not just protecting us, but respecting us. You know, we've had for a very long time conversations within black and Latino communities about law enforcement and about worries that law enforcement harbored biases. But we're now talking about, you know, there have been for many, many years conversations about whether or not extremist groups were attempting to deliberately infiltrate law enforcement. Um, we've seen instances where sort of, you know, Klan activity, we saw that in South Florida among law enforcement, where, you know, this sort of bias and extremism plays out in their everyday jobs. And now we have the acting chief of the Capitol Police saying that this same sort of milieu of groups wants to blow up the Capitol. If you've got three percenters who are basically law enforcement and military, if you had people with badges showing them to black police officers who are also getting called the N-word hurled at them, do you think it should be more urgent to start looking at law enforcement and the military to try to weed out white nationalists and ex- other extremists? Uh, absolutely. You know, in, in law enforcement across the country and even different branches of uh, the military, uh, look, it's not lost on a, a whole lot of us, right? I'm talking about my colleagues here in the Senate, uh, both through observation and through feedback, the differences in how the Capitol Police and greater law enforcement community uh, in the Capitol uh, prepared for and responded to peaceful protests last summer after the killing of George Floyd versus the deadly insurrection that took place on January 6th. Uh, and some of the initial inquiries, some of the initial investigations have already highlighted some officers who, uh, you know, there's reports were either uh, directing, you know, providing directions for insurrectionists may have been uh, uh, helpful. Uh, they were taking selfies with them. And what kind of response to that to a violent mob? And so, 
the, the more than red flags that are being raised, they will be looked into. And whether it's Donald Trump, his enablers, or anybody involved with uh, uh, the planning and execution of the insurrection on January 6th must be held accountable and use that as a basis for how do we plan and prepare for the future uh, to ensure safety going forward. Yeah, indeed. Um, not to say nothing of the, the, the Proud Boys and the questions of whether they've had too close relationships with police. It's all very weird. Um, but I do want to ask you before I let you go about this near attendant nomination. Um, what do you make of the fact that Republicans who for four years were absolutely silent and would run from cameras at the vulgar, misogynistic, racist, Nazi cuddling commentary of the president of the United States, along with one Democrat at least, at least one Democrat, um, Joe Manchin, essentially torpedo the nomination of a woman of color and are setting up more people of color. They've got an interesting observation of the people that they don't like. Javier Becerra, Deb Holland. People of color seem to have a problem um, with Republicans supporting their nominations. What do you make of what's happened with Nira, given the fact that the former president was a constant racist, misogynist, et cetera, and they seem fine with it? Well, it may be blunt. It's an insulting double standard. Uh, and I tried calling out uh, during near attendance uh, confirmation hearing in committee. Uh, right. It's uh, uh, coincided, by the way, with the impeachment trial. Uh, if you want to hold somebody accountable for offensive tweets, you know, let's be consistent, not hypocritical. Uh, I called the double standard out when I was introducing Attorney General Becerra in finance committee last week, as he's up for uh, confirmation as secretary of health and human services. I have lived through that double standard throughout my 20 year career in public service. And now we have the voice as a United States Senator to call it out in this venue. Uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, President Biden finds another spot for near in somewhere in the administration. She, she's a tremendous asset, uh, can be very helpful uh, for the administration and for uh, government uh, as a whole. Uh, but we'll address and call out the double standard at every turn. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully he will. And somewhere where she doesn't have to get Joe Manchin's permission um, to serve uh, in the service of her country. Uh, thank you, Alex. Senator Alex Padilla. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, joining me now is former CIA director John Brennan and former FBI special agent Clint Watts. Thank you both for being here. Actually, I'm going to go to you first, Clint, um, because it, 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 it occurs to me that what we heard today, these repeated attempts that Republicans have tried to do to reframe what happened on January 6th, as some sort of both sides thing to try to invent Antifa, which is basically anti-fascists. You know, that's, of course, they hate that um, and say that they and Black Lives Matter were somehow equally culpable for what happened on January 6th. When Chris Ray had to keep saying to them, that isn't true as a law enforcement matter. Do you think that having the base of one of our two political parties connected to the people that are being investigated will impede the work of organizations like the FBI? I definitely think so, Joy. I mean, over the last four years, we've seen the FBI be degraded by the president, uh, whether it was that uh, during the Russia investigation or many of the uh, different uh, financial crimes that have been investigated. So when you look at it, this has really put a divide in the country between those that support Trump and, and, and those that don't. And I think one of the things that you can look at is there is overlap between some of these militia groups and law enforcement. There's overlap between them and the military. There's a issue right now with what's known as constitutional sheriffs, essentially the those local law enforcement that don't believe Joe Biden legitimately wanted say essentially that they will not respect 
him as the president of the United States. That's a fundamental breakdown of law and order in the country. There is no equivalency by any measure between Antifa or any political left terrorism right now and what's going on on the political right. And I always like to remind people when they hear Antifa, that means anti-fascist, which is in response to another. So if you have Antifa, then you have FA, or as in fascist, which comes down to white supremacy. It's the number one issue in the country in terms of domestic terrorism and terrorism overall. And it's it's followed up very closely behind by anti-government militia groups. And that's really where the FBI, I think Director Ray said that today, he's going to focus on that. I would like to see our elected leaders focus on that as well. Well, it says something about one political party when they think that the most dangerous thing are people who are against fascism. I think it says more about them than about Antifa. Uh, Mr. Brennan, you know, today, Mr. Ray, Christopher Ray, likened this domestic terrorist threat to ISIS. But I wonder if, you know, from your experience, they're more like Al Qaeda, because in the case of Al Qaeda, they are embedded in and have the support of the government. That was part of the reason we wound up in Afghanistan. They're being shielded by the government in Afghanistan. In this case, even some of the people in the hearings want to defend fundamentally the people who committed the attack on our government, on our country, because they view them as part of their base. They need their votes. And so they don't want to harm them. They don't want to end uh, their power. They, 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 I don't know how you can investigate something that one of our two major political parties sees as part of their base. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I agree, uh, Joy. And one of the most disturbing things that Christopher Ray said today was uh, the tremendous surge in the number of investigations, over 2,000. Tremendous surge since he came into office in 2017. And I think it just shows how pervasive this problem is. And as he pointed out, these racially and ethnically motivated hate groups, the militias, the white supremacists and others, they are represented across this country. So unlike an al-Qaeda that has just a handful of individuals that it was able to sneak into this country, the fact that you have so many of these individuals. And as you point out, there are politicians who not only coddle them, but continue to fuel the sentiments that gives rise to their violent attacks. So I think Chris Ray, I think, has done a good job the last four years. Uh, this is a time now in light of the sacking of the Capitol on January 6th, as well as the surge in domestic terrorism, to review the statutory authorities of the FBI, the, the collection and analytic capabilities, the distribution system of the information that they have. But there is going to be tension between um, civil liberties and privacy on the one hand, and the FBI's investigative methods. And this is something that I think the Congress would be ideal if it was operating in a bipartisan and fair manner. Manner, really needs to work with the leadership of the FBI to make sure that they get this balance right. 
That's a really important point, Clint. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, when President Obama came into office and his Department of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, they came out with this report warning back then, you know, about white nationalist extremism that was tied to the election of the first black president and that it was going to increase. Republicans slapped that down because, again, that's their base. They're like, well, you can't say anything about people on the right or anyone who's, who's considered right wing. You can't do that. So that ended up going away. Then you had Christopher Ray last year in September before the one six attack say, hey, you know, white nationalist extremism, that's the biggest threat that was sort of shut down. And so you have no one's doing anything about it. And what I worry about, Clint, and I wonder if you worry about this, too, as we get closer and closer and closer to that date that triggered a lot of people back during Obama's era, when we lose our white majority, when America becomes a, a country without a racial majority, isn't this just going to get worse? Are you worried that it's just going to ramp up more and more? I, I definitely am, Joy. And you could see it when President uh, Obama took office. And there were warnings, as you said, not just that one uh, about white supremacists uh, rising, essentially, in, in the last decade. But there was also one about former military potentially joining extremist groups. The Department of Homeland Security put out a report and they essentially had to retract it uh, because the Republican Party did not like hearing that. But we saw how this unfolds here today. I think what we will see, there's really three things that will unfold, I think, as we head into summer. One, uh, President Trump has been fairly quiet. If he is to enter back into the stage, if he gets a platform again, when he starts talking, that's when these people start moving to whatever the targets are he de designates. That's why Governor Whitmer and that plot with the Wolverine militia, which is the FBI, you know, foiled, thank thankfully, uh, that's why they were going there. I think the second part is the pandemic will come to a close to some degree. And as the country opens back up, there will once again be targets available. That's one of the things that's kept a lot of this on the lid is we've been able to fight this domestic terrorism because there's no big targets out there. I think the third thing is there's a yeah. lot of splintering going on after this January 6th attack right now with these domestic extremist groups. A lot of the young upstarts that had uh, a presence there on January 6th or endorsed it are now further motivated to go ahead and pursue extremism. And I don't see it going away anytime soon. They're going to be motivated throughout this year and it will continue on. Well, scaring is caring. So, Mr. Brennan, if you tell us, what, what should we be worried about? Should we be worried about the inaugural in the, in the, in the near future? Um, there's the whole QAnon conspiracy that on the 14th, somehow Donald Trump is going to be inaugurated. I mean, what, are you, what is keeping you up at night? Well, I think there could be any number of flashpoints that could motivate these individuals to take violence into their own hands once again. But what gives me a sense of optimism here is that we now have a White House that is focused on this issue. We have competent people in charge. One of the things I still don't know, whether or not there was any discussions and meetings that the White House had prior to the January 6th event, because it was quite clear that all these various groups were going to be sent upon Washington. When I was President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor, I'd be talking to the Director of FBI, I'd be talking to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Capitol Police, the Sergeant at Arms in both houses to make sure that all of the, the preparations were in place. I don't believe that the White House did any of that in advance of January 6th. Now we have adults in the White House, and I think they're going to take this seriously as well they should. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's good to have adults in the White House. Uh, John Brennan, uh, Clinton Watts, thank you both very much for your expertise. And up next on the readout, more on the breaking news tonight that the White House has pulled the nomination of Neera Tandon after criticism from Republicans and, of course, Senator Joe Manchin. Plus, Democrats are on the verge of passing a huge, major piece of legislation that will bring desperately needed relief to millions of struggling Americans. So what does old Ted Cancun Cruz think about that? 
The Democratic Party has abandoned the working class men and women. Says the Harvard and Princeton educated senator who opposes the $15 minimum wage, who has a wealthy banker wife with whom he fled to the Ritz Carlton in Cancun. Ted, you were last night's absolute worst, but tonight, I, I, hard, I can't even believe it, but there's actually someone even worse than you. Big reveals coming up. Stay with us. Democrats are on the cusp of doing something really big, passing transformative legislation that will have a real impact on millions of Americans. Urgently needed COVID economic relief. It will put $1,400 checks in the hands of millions of you and extend unemployment insurance for five months. And its child tax credit aims to put child, cut child poverty in half, the largest reduction in child poverty in decades. It's also overwhelmingly popular. Three quarters of Americans back it. But in the Senate, which will begin work on it tomorrow, Democrats are standing down after barely letting out a whimper last week when the Senate parliamentarian slapped down the inclusion of the $15 minimum wage. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has vowed to force a vote to overrule the parliamentarian and get rid of the filibuster. But West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he'll never vote to end the filibuster, telling reporters, quote, Jesus Christ, what don't you understand about never? Well, that's a charming guy. Manchin also says he's concerned about the size of the bill, which presents a problem for President Joe Biden, who's working to unify Democrats behind the plan. Today, Biden told Senate Democrats to stick together and pass it quickly. Meanwhile, Ted Cancun Cruz, who was chilling at the Ritz Carlton in Mexico while his constituents literally froze and whose party is undyingly servile to a man who lives in a resort and who opposes a $15 minimum wage. Well, Ted, Ted claims it's actually Democrats who have abandoned the working class. The Democratic Party has abandoned the working class men and women, the millions of people who are out of jobs, who are seeing their wages pulled down. They don't represent unions anymore. They don't rep represent construction workers or truck drivers or working men and women anymore. The Democratic Party today is the party of wealthy elites on both coasts. Joining me now is Congresswoman Karen Bass of California. You know, Congresswoman, Ted Cruz is the absolute worst. Uh, but this argument that he keeps making that somehow working class people reject the idea of getting $15 an hour. Have you met many of these truck drivers and uh, working class Americans who are like, no, 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 I don't want $15 an hour. Pay me less. <laughs> I have never met anybody that said that, and uh, he is speaking those words just like a wealthy elite. I don't think he would know a working class person if he was sitting next to one. So it is ridiculous. Frankly, in some states, $15 an hour is not even enough. And California has been in the process of raising the minimum wage for quite a while, and guess what? Our economy is doing okay. Obviously took a hit from, from COVID, but it is not ruining life, the quality of life in California to raise the minimum wage. You know, Steny Hoyer, um, your majority leader uh, in the House of Representatives, Democratic majority leader in the House, has said that, you know, he says that the $15 minimum wage should happen in the near future. Um, he says that the House will take up a bill to try to do that. Um, what does that mean specifically? Do you foresee a standalone bill to try to get the $15 wage through? I do see a standalone bill. However, throughout the year, there will be many significant pieces of legislation that we have to pass. And maybe there's a way to join the minimum wage to another significant piece of legislation. So we'll just have to wait and see. 
But the most I, I, you important know, and then, thing and is, then it goes is that back. we're not. Yeah. The most important thing is, is that we're not going to stop the fight until we get it done. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, And then we wind up back in the United States Senate. What do you make of Joe Manchin's claim that he essentially has a veto? He has declared for himself a veto over Joe Biden's cabinet. He's decided that he doesn't like near attendance tweets. Therefore, she may not have a job in the administration. He's decided he doesn't like the minimum wage being $15 an hour, even though there are a lot of poor folks in his state that I'll bet would love to make the kind of money that he and his daughter, who's a health CEO, make. They make lots and lots of money. I bet lots of people in his state would like to have it. But he said, nope, you can't have that. He's also raised questions about Deb Holland, another woman of color who Republicans don't seem to like having women of color get cabinet spots and uh, men of color as well. He seems to be standing in the way of a lot. Do you think at this point (laughs) Democrats like him are as much an issue as Republicans? Well, I don't think so. No, I don't think there's any way you can compare him to Republicans and the way they have stopped everything. But I certainly hope that he gets with the program, especially with the $15 minimum wage, because I know the wages in West Virginia are low. And so it's sad to think that he would stand and block that. If the Republicans, which I don't doubt, I don't think there are 10 of them, but let's just say there were 10 magically who showed up and said, we'll we'll buckle and we'll go to t- 10 or 12 dollars an hour. Would you would you uh, advise your colleagues in the Senate to go for that? No, 10 and 12 dollars an hour are not livable wages. We need to have the 15 dollar minimum wage. And that is a minimum wage. I would also like to see it indexed so we wouldn't have to fight this fight every few years. You know, it's been years since the minimum wage has been raised. I want to ask you, with uh, Vernon Jordan having passed, uh, a lot of uh, us are very sad that that he is gone, Um, whether you think that other really important things that people voted for, like voting, you know, preserving the Voting Rights Act, which is now threatened by, you know, the 6-3 majority that Republicans have in the Supreme Court, um, or a bill, the, the, the George Floyd Act, which I know is very important to you and to other Democrats, are any of these things going anywhere with uh, a 50-50 Senate in which you have some Democrats like Manchin and Sinema and others who aren't sticking with the, the White House? Well, I will tell you that I am very optimistic about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You know, we're on the 30th anniversary of the Rodney King beating, where we were first introduced to police abuse on video. And so I believe that we will pass it out of the House on Thursday, and we will immediately begin discussions with the Senate. I have been in conversation with Tim Scott, and of course, Cory Booker will be leading the way in the Senate. And I am very hopeful that with bipartisan support in the Senate, that we will be able to put a bill to transform policing in America on President Biden's desk. You trust Tim Scott to be the negotiator? The last time he put up a bill, it was essentially a gutted shell of a, of a George Floyd act. Do you think that he's there an have honest been broker many, There have been many conversations that have happened since then, and I do believe that we will be able to reach an agreement. And we're going to get to work right away. I we're love optimism. Off the floor on Thursday. You'll see. I love optimism. All right. All right. I'm waiting. I want I want to be optimistic. My name is Joy. I want to be optimistic. <laughs> Congresswoman Karen Bass. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time tonight. OK, well, we had an absolute worst all picked out for tonight. We were all ready to go. But then a big story broke involving someone even worse than our pick for absolute worst. Stay tuned to find out who that is next. Today, 
we're announcing a major step forward. Two of the largest healthcare and pharmaceutical companies in the world that are usually competitors are working together on the vaccine. Johnson & Johnson and Merck will work together to expand the production of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. That announcement by President Biden today means millions more vaccines will be made available to the public with enough doses for all adults by the end of May, two months ahead of schedule. That is huge and great news. But with the threat of new COVID variants, health officials are pleading with the public not to let their guard down. We cannot be resigned to 70,000 cases a day, 2,000 daily deaths. Please hear me clearly. At this level of cases with variants spreading, we stand to completely lose the hard-earned ground we have gained. Now is not the time to relax the critical safeguards that we know can stop the spread of COVID-19 in our communities, not when we are so close. Well, surprise, those warnings are not being heeded by some Republican governors. Here is absolutely terrible Florida Governor Ron DeSantis welcoming CPAC attendees, reveling in his belief that he knows better than the health officials. For those of you who aren't from Florida, welcome to our oasis of freedom. Well, at least he didn't scream freedom. Well, believe it or not, DeSantis is not the worst, at least not tonight. The absolute worst is Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Now, mind you, Texas is still recovering from an historic winter blast that left millions without wind, water and electricity. But today, Abbott made this announcement. It is now time to open Texas 100 percent effective next Wednesday. All businesses of any type are allowed to open 100 percent. Yeah, yeah, you heard it right. The Texas governor said COVID be dead. Everybody go ahead and open up. And that's not all of it. He's also lifting the state's mask mandate. Perhaps the governor should take a look at what happened when he eased restrictions in the past. Cases went right back up. And you get some COVID and you get some COVID and you get some COVID and you get some COVID. For the 29 million Texas residents, please, please do not listen to your governor. Keep taking all safety precautions and protect your health and your lives because your governor Greg Abbott is the absolute worst. This morning, America lost yet another legend. Vernon Jordan, civil rights icon and political power broker, passed away at age 85. The Atlanta native once served as the Georgia field director for the NAACP, where he fought to register voters while his friend and counterpart, Medgar Evers, who was later assassinated, did the same in Mississippi. Jordan himself survived an assassination attempt in 1980. He went on to run the Voter Education Project, which helped register a million black voters in the South after passage of the Voting Rights Act. Sadly, Jordan joins a generation of civil rights heroes who we've recently lost. And now the Supreme Court seems inclined to kill off the remnants of their seminal work, the Voting Rights Act. The case heard before the court today involves two Arizona laws that make it harder for some voters to cast their ballots. A lower court found the laws racially discriminatory under the Voting Rights Act. Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked Republican lawmakers why the law mattered so much to their party. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis ballot disqualification rules on the books? 
because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. Mm -hmm. You hear that? The case isn't about reducing fraud. It's about keeping people from voting to give Republicans an advantage. I guess we can appreciate the honesty. For for more, I'm joined by Ari Berman, senior reporter with Mother Jones. It's Ari... I am not hopeful that this 6-3 majority will keep the Voting Rights Act in place. Are are you as pessimistic as I am? Is the Voting Rights Act about to be eliminated? It's hard to be optimistic about the Voting Rights Act with this court that already gutted the Voting Rights Act. I'm not sure they're going to go so far, Joy, just to say that the Voting Rights Act is completely eliminated, but they might just interpret it in such a restrictive way that it'll be functionally eliminated or reduced to so little protection for minority voters that they can't really look to the courts for relief anymore. And the fact that Republicans are challenging the Voting Rights Act at the very moment that they're trying to pass all of these new voter suppression laws that very likely violate the Voting Rights Act just shows how big of a threat to democracy we see right now from the Republican Party. Yeah, while claiming that their strategy for 2022 is to run women uh, and people of color for election. Um, here's former uh, Georgia, uh, here's Georgia, David Perdue, who is the governor, obviously, um, uh, of Georgia. And here he is, or former, I'm sorry, former Senator David Perdue, the ex-senator of David Perdue, talking about the voting laws down there. Take a listen. Mother, we had uh, significant irregularities in the November election um, that may have affected the outcome. So, what the state is trying to do right now is correct some of these potential irregularities and create a level playing field for all legal voters to have equal access, make it easier to vote, harder to cheat, and give everybody equal access to their uh, constitutional right. We should note he started with a lie. There were no significant irregularities in the November election. Their Republican secretary of state and all the election officials said that. But that's the argument. What's the counterargument to that? They're claiming that they just want to make things fair and equal for everyone. Well, the counterargument is that they wrote the state's voting laws in Georgia, that Republicans created the entire system and they were perfectly happy with it until Democrats and black voters started using it to their benefit. So it was Republicans that were for mail voting. It was Republicans that were for early voting. It was Republicans that were for automatic registration. The Republican Secretary of State, every single press release from him says Georgia's the leader in elections because it has automatic registration. It has early voting. It has no excuse absentee voting. And only when Democrats started winning in Georgia and black voters turned out in record numbers did they start trying to repeal all of the things that Republicans bragged about that made it easy to vote. So Georgia's a fascinating test case because it just goes to show you it has nothing to do with election integrity because the secretary of state there was so clear that it was a well-run election. It has to do with the fact that they are now trying to target the voting methods that they created after Democrats and black voters used them in large numbers, really for the first time in the state's history. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Well, yeah, and you heard that in Arizona. They were very clear. They're like, we have a disadvantage when everyone can vote, so we need to get our advantage back. Here's what uh, Stacey Abrams uh, told us last night on the program uh, about this very issue. When you can win elections, not by having the best ideas, but by stealing the right to vote, then you do not deserve to win and you don't deserve to participate. And so what we need is a call to action that not only stops these bills in local and the state legislatures, but we've got to also fight hard to make certain that H.R. 1 and S.R. 1 and H.R. 4 become the law of the land in the United States. Ari, um, H.R. 1 and S.R. 1 obviously contained the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that would try to restore and, re, re, you know, re, re bring back the Voting Rights Act to its full strength. Um, this is coming in the wake of 253 different laws being proposed by Republican legislatures um, in 43 different states. And like almost a dozen Republican United States senators who are 100 percent in favor of just overturning the Voting Rights Act, period. Um, just get rid of it, including Mitch McConnell including Ted Cruz, including Rick Scott from Florida, where they do a lot of voter suppression down there as well. How hopeful are you that Democrats will get the will, develop the will to do what it takes, meaning end the filibuster or at least change it so that they can get the Voting Rights Act through? Because if they don't pass the John Lewis Act, then what? Well, all of the voter suppression in Georgia, efforts to weaken the Voting Rights Act before the Supreme Court, this is putting a tremendous amount of pressure on Democrats to respond, that we are in a make or break moment for democracy, that Republicans clearly are going to do everything they can to undermine the democratic process through voter suppression, through gerrymandering, through other anti-democratic methods. And Democrats have to respond. And the best way that Democrats can respond is by passing H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and by passing H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. This would go a very long way towards protecting voting rights. It would go a lot further than hoping that the Roberts Court the six to three conservative court protects voting rights. That's very unlikely to happen. But the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the For the People Act, this could stop voter suppression. And so, yes, Joe Manson, Kirsten Sinema, they're not going to decide tomorrow to eliminate the filibuster. But Democrats are betting that if all of these anti-democratic tactics by Republicans are accelerated, that will put more pressure on Democrats to have some sort of response, not just to help the Democratic Party, but literally to possibly save American democracy. That's how high the stakes are right now. Oh, absolutely. Having a zombified Voting Rights Act means having no Voting Rights Act, essentially. Ari Berman, thank you so much for all that you do. Really appreciate you being here tonight. And coming up, two weeks after being slammed by a historic winter storm, residents of Jackson, Mississippi, are still without running water with no relief in sight. That is next. Stay with us. While the whole country's been focused on the infrastructure crisis in Texas, there are people in Jackson, Mississippi, who have gone more than two weeks without running water. After two winter storms forced Jackson's water system, which hasn't been updated in decades, to shut down. The city's been working to restore service, distributing water to residents in the meantime, but it's been slow going. And officials are unable to give an exact timeline on when water will be restored everywhere. More than a quarter of the people in Jackson, in Jackson, Mississippi, a city that is 82 percent black, live in poverty. The Daily Beast reports residents have noticed that the crisis has hit South and West Jackson hardest while leaving Northeast Jackson, the one predominantly white corner, relatively unscathed. It's a reality officials attribute to the distance between these neighborhoods and the city's water treatment plants as they work to raise the water pressure high enough to reach those neighborhoods. 
Jackson's mayor has estimated that updating Jackson's water system to prevent future crises will cost around $2 billion, which is more than six times the city's annual budget. I'm joined now by Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba and Lori Bertram. Lori Bertram Roberts, co-founder of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, and she's been distributing water and other necessities to Jackson's Jackson residents. Um, Mayor Lumumba, I want to start with you first. Jackson has a long history of having issues with water. Um, there are T-shirt shops that sell Welcome to Boil Water Alert Mississippi, um, and, and, which is, you know, not funny at all, but that's T-shirts that are being sold. It's been likened to Flint. How bad is the crisis right now, and what's the timeline for people in Jackson to get their water back on? Well, first and foremost, uh, Joy, thank you for having me uh, on this evening. I thank Lori for, for being here as well. Uh, this situation is, is extremely critical. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, you have residents who don't have the necessities that they need, not only for drinking and cooking and bathing, uh, but we're in the midst of a pandemic, which you know necessitates the need for water even more. Uh, what took place uh, was that uh, the pressure in our distribution system was interrupted by the storm. It froze pipes, it froze uh, water coming from the very inception. Uh, we don't have a water treatment facility which is weatherized and, and years of, of a lack of investment, uh, not only locally, uh, but more importantly, state and federal funds that, that could support uh, these these type of uh, infrastructure needs uh, have not, it has not been a joint uh, effort and it has not been viewed as a, as a, as a necessity for, for both entities. Uh, and so where we are right now is that we are increasing the pressure. Uh, the system is moving forward. Uh, but one of the solutions is unfortunately time. Uh, we do, while we cannot share the exact day and hour that each re- that the last resident will have water, we do know that we are towards the end of our journey because we are starting to get reports of residents at the furthest point uh, in the distribution line that are starting to receive it. Uh, and so uh, it's a constant effort of working day in and day out. Uh, and we're grateful for the residents that are uh, offering their time volunteering uh, to distribute water, uh, bottled water, non-potable water, uh, to help residents in need. You know, and Lori, this is an age-old story. Um, these, you know, the, the parts of uh, this city that are predominantly black don't have water. The one part that is predominantly white, things seem to be fine. You know, this kind of uh, racism, it dates back. A lot of these states, not just southern states, but the southern states seem to be particularly a thing. Um, where there's just lack of investment in communities of color, lack of investment in infrastructure. It's all about privatization and profit. Um, I wonder if you wonder, I mean, what, what, in your view, what can be done about that? I mean, what really needs to be done is major infrastructure investment on the federal and state level, right? Um, it was not shocking to me that it took the state so long to even show up in Jackson, even though our governor made had the nerve and the audacity to say our mayor wasn't available to speak to him. Although I checked and it's a five minute walk from his office and his, his mansion to the to town, you know, to the city hall. Right. So even if it was true that our mayor could not be reached by the phone, he could have sent any number of his staff right up the street to City Hall to speak to any of the mayor's staff, right? He could have sent anyone to speak to anyone in the city of Jackson, but that's how little the priority Jackson is. And it's not just Jackson, it's the Mississippi Delta is without water right now. It's other parts of Mississippi, but it's majority black parts of Mississippi. And so it's not a priority for Tate Reeves. 
And it's never been a priority you know, for it, not Tate Reeves, not Haley Barber, and not, you know, Phil Bryant. It sounds a lot like Texas, um, Mayor Lumumba, quite frankly, this sort of failed states where there are states where there are a small number of very, very wealthy people. And all they do is prioritize themselves, low taxes for themselves, private schools for their kids, mostly white. And everyone else is basically just left to suffer and maybe even to die. Um, talk about your governor a little bit. Has he been in touch with you since his apparent failure to get you on the phone? Uh, well, we've, uh, well, we've reached out, uh, throughout this process and, and, you know, I've been on, I've had the pleasure of joining you before, uh, Joy, as we've talked about COVID and, and talked about, uh, those communication challenges. Uh, nonetheless, we still push forward and press forward, uh, and, and ask the state for support. We need that support. I think it's also important to lift up, uh, based on Lori's point, uh, that we make it clear that, that cities are not designed by happenstance. Uh, you know, I'm a part of a just city initiative, which talks about city design and how, you know, wealth, wealthy communities are closest to the resources. It's because it is designed in that way. And so we have to look at more equitable models of how cities are, are built. Uh, we need to look at more equitable models of how resources are allocated to community. Uh, and so we need the state of Mississippi to understand uh, that when Jackson's water system failed, it isn't a Jackson, Mississippi uh, problem. It's a state of Mississippi problem. Uh, we are the economic engine for the state of Mississippi. We are not only the capital city and, and the largest city by a factor of three. We are the capital of healthcare in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, and so they have to understand the seriousness and the severity of the challenges we suffer from. You know, and Lori, in the midst of that pandemic, the governor has also relaxed the mask mandate. You're going door to door and talking with folks. You know, how are people even able to fight the pandemic? They don't have water and now mask mandates gone. What what then? Yeah, it's it's absurd to me. And at the same time, he's trying to get people to go out and get vaccinated. Right. And those two things are uh, opposed to each other. Right. It's like on the one hand, he's touting science. And on the other hand, he's slap. I, I called it the hokey poke, pokey with science. It's right. Like on one hand, he takes his MAGA hat off and goes, oh, yes, science. And on the other hand, he's like, I put it back on now. So, you know, forget science. And it makes no sense. And also, it's just a big F you to black citizens in Mississippi who are dying at disproportionate rates. It's like we might we can go ahead and die. He's he's made sure that a bunch of white people yeah. are vaccinated now. And therefore, you know, the rest of yeah. us, poor white folks and black folks can die. Yeah, indeed. This is Medgar Evers uh, city, uh, J Jackson. So Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba. We're really thinking of y'all. Um, God bless you. Uh, Lori Bertram Roberts. Thank you. And bless you for all you're doing. That is tonight's readout. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.